You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Well, I want to start this morning by making a confession. I feel like I need to tell the truth. Is that all right? Thank you. I did not set out with the explicit purpose of being in ministry. There, I said it. I didn't necessarily want to be a pastor. If we're being completely honest, it feels like at times I've even been dragged here against my will. Very little of what has come to be expected of me feels natural, feels second nature. I'm sure there are those of you in the room who remember the first time that I got up onto this platform to give the announcements with trembling hands and shaking knees. I am in no way predisposed to public speaking. I don't like it. It makes me anxious and sweaty. (laughs) But in ministry, I've been called to speak the truth publicly, and that makes me incredibly anxious. In ministry, I've been called to help lead people, to disciple people. And it makes me incredibly insecure because leadership isn't my natural default. In ministry, I've been called to care for others. And others are frustrating and inconvenient. (laughs) If we're being completely honest, my natural desires are probably not predisposed for ministry. Is this too much honesty this morning? Does it make you a little anxious to hear your pastor say things like this? Well, this is why I've always resonated with the story of Moses, right? Here's a guy who didn't ask for leadership. He didn't ask for authority. He didn't ask for responsibility. It seems like he'd probably be more content living a a quiet life, free from the accountability and the frustration of all these rascals that God makes him responsible for. God says, listen, Moses, I need you to care for my people. And Moses says, you know who would actually do a really great job in this role? I have this brother, Aaron. He's been to seminary. He's taken all the pastoral care and counseling courses. He has a great singing voice, a very charismatic personality. How about I give you his number? And God says, actually, I'd prefer to use you. And Moses says, this is incredibly frustrating. This is, of course, a very loose summary. But the point I'm making is that you get this sense that Moses doesn't feel equipped. He doesn't always know what to do. He's incredibly insecure, and he doesn't really want the job. All things that at one point or another I've resonated with. But Moses can't escape this calling from God. Despite his own perceived weaknesses, his insecurities, how terribly inconvenient this task is for his own personal ambitions, God continues to call and equip him for a task that he actually has a lot of hesitation about. He recognizes that to do anything else would be disobedience. Like Moses, throughout my own life, I have felt an inescapable sense of responsibility to the people of God, to the church, to you. I have felt this so strongly that it feels like to do anything else would just be disobedience, willfully closing my ears to the voice of God. So here I am, 
stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Between God and you. What a situation. But the reality is, I can't imagine anything else. I can't imagine giving myself to anything else, not because I don't have an imagination for anything else, but because I feel like anything other than a life of service and ministry would be blatant disobedience. I feel like anything else would be to forfeit God's purposes for me in favor of my purposes for myself. I feel like anything else would be to ignore the voice of the Spirit. But you know, the funny thing is, the more time I spend trying to walk in obedience to God's call, the more I find a greater sense of purpose. I might even be learning to have a little fun doing it. The things that once scared me, once made me anxious, seem to be a little less scary. They make me a little less anxious. My hands don't tremble the way that they used to. I feel like maybe my knees are getting a little bit stronger. I'm learning to have a little more patience with people, right? I hope. It's possible that God might just be changing my desires, teaching me to desire the things that he desires. And the older I get, the more I realize that this daunting task that God is calling me to is quite possibly the most important and meaningful thing that I could be doing with my life. So this morning we're concluding this series on the kingdom and we've been uh, exploring these different facets of the kingdom of God, how the kingdom is realized in uh, unity. Do we have this? Yeah, we have this slide up here. Uh, how it is built on the love of the Father, how it is sustained by the life-giving word, how it thrives in connection to one another. And as Chip reminded us last week through the parable of the prodigal son, the kingdom acts out the mission of the king. And this week, on our last Sunday, we're going to be exploring how the kingdom gives purpose. So as we've been reflecting on the kingdom of God in this series, this morning we're asking the question, what does it mean to find purpose in the kingdom? How are we to live? If we are to be citizens of the kingdom of God, well, what are we to give ourselves to? So we're gonna get a little existential this morning and we're going to reflect on the purpose of following Christ in his kingdom and how we are to make sense of this purpose. So we're gonna, we're gonna start with our scripture reading. This is uh, the words of Paul in his letter to the Romans. This is Romans 12 verses one to two. Do we have this up here on the screen? Yeah. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. When we think about purpose as Christians, there's this idea floating around that we have an innate set of desires, passions that are God-given, these dormant passions. And once we pinpoint these passions that you know, make us really excited and kind of scratch that itch, and we find a way to act on these passions, well, then we'll know that we have arrived at our purpose. There are, I think, a couple of problems with this idea. The first is that this is rarely how God interacts with his people throughout the scriptures, right? Think about Moses. Moses has no innate desire for the thing that God has called him to. In fact, he tries to pass it off on his brother. Think about Mary. 
Surely Mary had no interest in the scrutiny and ridicule that would come with being the unmarried teenage mother of God. Think about Samuel. This poor guy didn't even have a choice. His mom promised God that if he gave her a son, she would give that son back to God. And this is where we find Samuel, right? Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Think about Jonah. God goes to some pretty extreme lengths to use this guy that clearly does not want to be used. It seems as though throughout scripture, God calls on people to do the things that they're not naturally passionate about. The other problem with basing our sense of purpose on our passions or interests is that if we wait around for the spirit of God to intersect with the things that we're currently excited about, we might just find ourselves waiting around forever, never really joining in on the work that the spirit is calling us to. Now, I wanna be clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't use or doesn't care about our passions, our interests, or the things that we're naturally gifted with. We ought to naturally be sharing these gifts and these talents, these abilities with our neighbors to build up the church, to build up the kingdom of God. What I am saying is that throughout the scriptures, we find that the righteous ones are the ones that have the ears to hear how God might be calling them to participate in his purposes despite how uncomfortable that may seem to them. I think what these characters have in common isn't necessarily an innate sense of what their passions are or how they can utilize those passions for God. I think what they have in common is what Paul is talking about here in his letter to the Romans. They have presented themselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. These righteous people that we read about in the scriptures they don't wait to participate in the mission of God until they find the thing that really interests them. They give their entire being to God sacrificially. They're willing to go to the uncomfortable places and do the things that they once thought impossible because they have abandoned themselves to the purposes of God. And this is what Paul is calling the church to here. He says, you wanna know what true worship is? True purpose? Give yourself away. We're reminded of the strange words of Jesus. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake, they will find it. This is, after all, a strange kingdom. So maybe it's at this point that you're asking the question, if it's not about my desires, but rather the desires of God for my life, well, how am I supposed to know what those desires are? Well, fortunately for us, Paul thought that his readers might just ask this question, so he writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think the question for us is not so much are we capable of discerning, is it possible to know the will of God, I think the real question is, are we willing to discern? Do we really want to know the will of God, to have a sense of what God's purposes are, 
might just be a scary thing. It might put you in the belly of the whale. It might lead you into the wilderness. Or God help us, it might put you in the pulpit on Sunday morning, trying your best to arrive at the truth. To discern God's will for us might mean that we have to confront the reality that God is actually calling us to engage with those people that he has been historically concerned with. Poor people, orphans, widows, foreigners, the imprisoned. Discerning the will of God will take us to places that we haven't been before, calling us to lead, to give, to serve, to act out his mission in the world. To discern the will of God means having the willingness to encounter God and to be transformed, to be renewed. I'm reminded of Jesus's encounter with the rich young man. This is from Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. The gospel writer says, then someone came to him and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. In the rich young man, we see someone that recognizes that there is purpose beyond himself. He sees it, but he doesn't quite know how to get after it. He knows he's empty. He has all the material things that he could possibly want, that he could possibly want. It seems as though he's even led a fairly ethical life, at least by the standards of the law. He says, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I've done these things, but I'm a little anxious that I might come up short at the judgment. Yet when confronted with Jesus, that is confronted with God, confronted with truth, he can't bring himself to let go of his own desires. Because he is so shaped by the world, he can't imagine a future where he is renewed and transformed for a purpose greater than himself, greater than his own desires. So he walks away sad. He knows what he must do, but he can't bring himself to do it. In this moment, Jesus calls him to present himself as a living sacrifice, but he can't do it. For he had many possessions, many passions, many desires. I recognize that culturally speaking, it's not a very popular idea to say that God's desires are more important than my desires to say that anyone's rights are greater than my rights. After all, we love the idea that we are self-made. We love the idea that we control our destiny. We love the idea that we can be whatever we will ourselves to be. And because of that, our personal freedoms are worth protecting at all costs. 
But to present our lives as a sacrifice means that we give ourselves entirely to God, our rights, our entitlements, our identities, our destinies, no longer our own. To use Paul's language, we become slaves to Christ. The funny paradox of this kingdom is that though this may sound like burden, right? Though this may sound like shackles, like chains, like confinement, like it's infringing on our freedoms, like it's trying to impose itself on me, the reality is that in this kingdom, under the rule of this king, we find what it is to know purpose, to experience true freedom, to experience true worship. What a strange paradox. By learning to lose your life, you find it. And the reality is that in giving our lives as a sacrifice to God, he calls us to a vastly more interesting life than whatever we could hope to conjure up on our own. Think of kind of the sad, pathetic character that Moses was when he first encounters God, right? He's lost, he's insecure, but it's in his willingness to be used by God that we witness the man who would go on to part the seas, who would go toe-to-toe with the Egyptians, who would bring the word and the law to the people of Israel. This is not the same man that we met at the beginning of the story. It's in giving our lives as a sacrifice to God that we find that his purpose for our life is greater and more interesting than whatever purpose we conjure up for ourselves. So what's the shape of this purpose? What form does this purpose take? Or maybe to to ask it another way, if we are not to be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds, what are we being transformed into? Paul continues in his letter to the Romans, for as in one body we have many members and not all members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. Our purpose is transformation into the body of Christ. Paul picks up this idea in his letter to the Corinthian church and he fleshes it out a little bit more. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 26. Paul writes, Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members, they don't need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member 
that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Are you aware that right now, something mystical and mysterious is happening as we speak? that a miracle of sorts is happening right now. As we have gathered in the name of the Lord to sing our creeds, to preach the truth, to hear the word, to testify to the good news, to give and to share, Christ himself is made manifest in the world. Where is Christ? Christ is here. Because we have gathered in his name and by his spirit, the living, breathing body of Christ is made manifest in the world. Seriously, take a moment and look around the room. Look around the room for a moment. The body of Christ is not an abstract idea. The body of Christ is realized in the gathering of his people by the members that comprise the body. The mystery here, the miracle, is that Paul, in his language of the body, is not using a metaphor. He's describing reality. Jesus himself tells us that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is present in their midst. And the beauty of this body is that there are no unnecessary parts. Listen to Paul's words. As it is, there are many members and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Often, we're tempted to think that unity comes by way of uniformity, right? Our commonalities are the things that unite us. We are at our most united when we think and function similarly. But Paul says that our diversity, that is our differences, make us more whole. Unity through diversity, what does this mean? This means that you have a purpose in this body. Paul writes, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. This means that every single member is critical to the life and the well-being of the body. We find this idea in the Trinity as well, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The community, the diversity of the Trinity, comprises the unity of the Godhead, three in one. So last year, for the first time in over 20 years, a group of us got out the handbells for Christmas. We were determined to put together a few carols for the Christmas concert, and it was an absolute thrill. Most of us had never played handbells before, and we had a blast. We made t-shirts and everything. It was completely over the top. <laughs> What's interesting about a, a handbell choir is that no two bells sound the same. It would be like if you were to take the 88 keys of a piano and give each player a single key to play. Now, depending on the arrangement, you might only ring that bell a couple of times, but if you were to take that bell away, just one little bell, 
It's a completely different song. No one else is playing that same note. If the song calls for 30 bells, it doesn't matter that there's 29 other bells. When a single note is missing, the whole song falls apart. Every single bell is critical. And this is the nature of the body of Christ as well. Do you know that you are critical to the life in the composition of this body? In fact, if, if you were to leave, the body actually suffers because you play a unique and unrepeatable role in the life of this body. And when it's missing, the song's just off. It doesn't sound quite right. Paul reminds us that to be united in this body is not unity under the banner of social class or nation, interests, race, political affiliation, gender, or whatever other distinction that we naturally use to segment ourselves. To be united in this body is to be united by the spirit, to present our lives as a living sacrifice and to be transformed into the body of Christ. I think that for a Christian, to ask the question of purpose is a daunting question. It ought to instill a little existential anxiety. Because as Christians, we aim to live into the reality that our lives are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice. Our bodies are to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. To strive for purpose is to seek to be transformed, to be renewed, to lose yourself within the body of Christ. There's this lie that the gospel will make us our best versions of ourselves that it will make us the best version that we can possibly be. But Jesus himself says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves. It's not about you. Rather, take up your cross. Come and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The good news is not about uncovering the ideal self deep down within you. The good news is that in losing ourselves, we are being brought into the very life of Christ. To seek purpose is to endeavor to encounter God, to come face to face with the truth, the word, and to subject ourselves to the movement of the Holy Spirit. To find meaning in a body that is greater than our own. Purpose is a calling. It's a beckoning of the Holy Spirit. And God is calling us this morning. Should we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, God is calling us to a life of strange adventure, to lose ourselves within the body for the life of the world. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Well, would you uh, stand and join me in prayer before we dismiss?
Father God, thank you for the gift of life today. We thank you that you are still speaking, that you are still calling your people. Our desire is that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you give us the courage to do the things that you're calling us to? Would you give us the courage to do the things that might make us uncomfortable? Would you give us the courage to follow after you today? Would we find purpose in obedience to your spirit and walking with you? We thank you for the gift of your body. Through it, would you make us more like you? We love you and we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.